Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon today is from Psalm 120. These are God's words. A song of ascents. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. O Yahweh, deliver my soul from a lying lip, from a deceitful tongue. What shall he give to you, and what shall he add to you, O deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You can take your seats. We are continuing through our series on the Psalms of Ascent. Remember, there are 15 in total, and today we are considering the first of these psalms. We've been jumping around a whole lot, and there have been reasons for doing that, but we're going to the start now. As I've said before, these songs of ascent were to be sung by the people of Israel as they ascended up to Jerusalem, the city on a hill, and on their way to the Temple Mount to worship. Though this psalm stands alone as a complete song with specific themes and reflections, I think it is helpful to consider why this psalm is designated a psalm of ascent. And also, I think it is important for us to consider what this psalm of ascent, being the first of the psalms of ascent, of 15, could mean. So why are these things important? I mentioned somewhere earlier in the series that in Calvin's commentary on the Psalms, he briefly mentioned a rabbinical understanding of the Psalms of Ascent, that they were written and compiled to form a 15-step progression of worship. And though Calvin rejected that proposal, after studying through them myself, I do think there is something to this. And I found out this week that Doug Wilson lands where I do, and that was a good feeling. So how do we see this progression? <clears throat> Today's psalm, the first of these psalms of ascent, should be considered the beginning of his ascent. The ascent begins from the distant lowlands of Meshach. We see the psalmist reflects on what it is like to sojourn in Meshach, leaving from this place, which evidently was an evil place, frames his pilgrimage to the temple. Meshach is a land full of lies that he doesn't want to be in. We will come back to the identity of Meshach soon. Uh, now the last of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 134, is at the end of the pilgrim's journey, in the temple at night. The first verse of that psalm says, Behold, bless Yahweh, all you slaves of Yahweh, who stand in the house of Yahweh by night. So the first and the last of the Psalms of Ascent bookend the Israelites' pilgrim journey to the temple nicely. Knowing how all the other Psalms of Ascent fit between those bookends is a little harder, but there is none of them that you could say are out of place. They fit inside the natural progression of the Israelites' pilgrimage to worship at the temple. Here are a couple obvious chronological connections with this journey through the other 13 in Psalm 121, the next psalm on the journey, the psalmist looks up to the mountains, which does imply they are still down low, still far off. They are yet to go up. In Psalm 122, the next psalm, 
The psalmist is standing in the gates of Jerusalem. That's what we sung first this morning. That is, at the beginning of the city. It says in verse 2, Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is built together, a city joined all together, to which the tribes, the tribes of Yah, go up. And I could go on trying to show how all 15 fit into this upward progression to the temple, but that's not really what I'm wanting to do this morning. The main reason I've brought up this idea of progression is to have us consider that this first psalm of ascent is being sung in distant lands, sinful lands, lying lands, which cause the psalmist to long for a better place than the one in which he dwells, a place where peace, justice, and truth reign. It frames his ascent. He has made no progression on this journey of ascent yet, but you can see how reflecting upon the place in which he dwells would cause this godly man to long for a place where the God of truth dwells. This reflection pulls him upward out of the lowlands filled with lying low lives. The symbol of low living or the low dwelling place of the depraved is built into the fabric of reality. We understand the symbolism intuitively. This is why we call criminals and drug addicts low lives. The book of Revelation tells us that the lake of fire the lowest of the low places, is reserved for all liars. And the place where the psalmist dwells is also a low place of liars. He says in verse 2, O Yahweh, deliver my soul from a lying lip, from a deceitful tongue. And then in verse 5, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell amongst the tents of Kedah. The place he sojourns is a lying place. He attaches behavior to a location, and being in that location drives him to woe. There are some profound spiritual realities in this attaching of behavior to a place, which we will consider later. Now, this particular place, Meshach, is mentioned a few times in Scripture. In Ezekiel 39, it says in verses 1 and 2, Now, as for you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So there's Meshech. And I will turn you around, drive you on, and take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. So we see here that Meshech is in the remotest parts of the north. It is far away. It is remote. And then a few verses on. In verse 5, we read, And I will send fire on Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands securely, and they will know that I am Yahweh. So this Meshech is also a place near the coast. It is in the coastlands in the remotest parts of the north. Now, coastlands are usually flat, low-lying places. So the symbolism of lowness and longing to ascend to high places is also seen in the location of Meshach. The psalmist is living in lowlands, the the land of liars, and he hates it. He desires to dwell in a place full of truth. Now, we too are living in a land of liars, right? 
Are you feeling any of the longing of the psalmist today? Does his heart resonate with yours when he says, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Does this resonate with your heart? <clears throat> we certainly do dwell in a land of liars, and the shameless, divisive lies of our culture have us on a trajectory to war. The race baiting, the climate alarmism, the lies that say anyone who is on the right is a fascist, all of these things are dividing our country and stirring up a hate that if left unchecked, unchallenged, will lead to war. This being the case, the people of God, the people of peace, should be like this psalmist, repulsed by the lies that surround them. They should be drawn upward to the pillar and support of the truth in the world, the church. The physical city of Jerusalem is no longer the place where we go to for truth, but we do a weekly pilgrimage to the household of God, the church. Listen to how Paul describes the church in his first letter to Timothy. He says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So this psalm has direct application to us today. I'm sure you are feeling this push and pull created by the lies in our culture. Their lies would pull you down with this country to death. Their lies are dragging down the soul of our nation. I'm sure you are seeing and feeling the force of this dragging. There is no way of avoiding it. We are part of a lying people, a Meshach of sorts, and I'm sure you hate it. Along with this, I'm sure the Holy Spirit in you is drawing you upward to the truth. In a world of lies and confusion, I'm sure that a word from the pulpit of the pillar of truth that cuts down the nonsense around you, a song that heralds the good lordship of Christ, all that comes with being part of the household of God, I'm sure that these things are becoming more and more attractive to you. They are for me. And that is why I chose this as our first song this morning. I was filled with joy and gladness when I heard them say to me, let us make our pilgrim journey, then the Lord's house we will see. That applies to us coming to church. <clears throat> now I want to come back to this idea of behavior being attached to location. We live in a binary reality. <clears throat> Everything comes from one of two places, from below or from above, from the world and the Gentile order, or from Israel, Jerusalem, or the church, the order established by the God of truth. The world is full of lies, but the heavens are filled with truth. We are not of the world, so we seek the things from above, not of the world. This is how we should think about reality conceptually. Reality is divided by two locations, and we identify with the high ground, the high ground of truth. Related to this, <clears throat> we do not follow the father of lies to where he dwells. 
but we follow Christ, the way, the truth, and the life who leads us upward to the Father. Jesus summed up this binary world in John 10.10. 10. The thief, that is the father of lies, comes only to steal and kill and destroy, to take you down. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly to raise you up. <clears throat> so the question is, which of these two will you follow? Satan downward on the way to death or Christ upward on the way to abundant life? Will you descend or will you ascend? <clears throat> will you go with the flow and be taken downstream with the lies of our culture? That would be easy. That would cost you nothing. <clears throat> All you have to do is float. Or will you resist the lies and take the narrow, hard, and upward way that leads to life? <clears throat> I know what Redwood will be doing. <clears throat> we'll be making the upward ascent. The burning in our thighs will be good for us. <clears throat> this being the case, we will need the Psalms of Ascent for this climb. They were written for this ascent. What song do we sing when we're dwelling in a land full of lies? Psalm 120. Are you sick of the lies that are being shamelessly handed to us by our state-owned and tax-funded media? Yes. <laughs> sing Psalm 120. And what does the psalm say? What are we supposed to sing? O Yahweh, deliver my soul from a lying lip, from a deceitful tongue. What shall he, what shall God give to you? And what shall he add to you, O deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. In a place full of lies, this is what we should be asking for. And this is how we should be asking for it. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do the God-inspired Psalms accord with his will? Will he hear us when we pray the prayers he has given us to pray? Of course he will. He will deliver his church from lying lips, that is, if we ask for it. God will give the liars who do not know the way of peace and are set on having war the sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree if, if we ask for it. And sadly, that is a big if. We are considering a song that the church of God needs today. We need it this morning. But does the church want it? Do they want these words? The church today doesn't want any enemies. We don't want to believe there are any real enemies, maybe with the exception of the big one, Satan. We most certainly don't want anyone to experience the arrows of a warrior because of what we sang on Sunday. This is because we have lost the heart of God. There are people alive today that God thinks would quite suit an arrow through the dome. But most of Christianity today is unlike Christ. I've referred to this new religion as Nicianity in the past, and that's not my term, it's used all over the place. It is a religion that does not want to fight. 
It does not know how to fight, <clears throat> and it does not know who they should be fighting. Instead, they fight those who are fighting. The enemies for them are Satan and those who point out more enemies. <clears throat> if pastors are going to engage in fighting today, it will be some form of infighting, or they'll do it taking down an old, already defeated enemy. No doubt, this Reformation Sunday, the reform-type pastors around the country will be bravely picking fights with 16th century enemies again. But the original reformers had real dangerous enemies. They had sway over their culture, these enemies. It would cost the Christian to confront their lies. <clears throat> we will consider the enemies that those who would like to be reformers should go after later. <clears throat> the point I'm wanting to make at the moment, though, is that we dwell amongst lying enemies, just as the psalmist did, and we must fight them with spiritual weapons, one of them being singing psalms. Though the psalms are spiritual weapons, they are not literal arrows, the church has abandoned them because these songs are calling for death. Just because they're calling for death, it's not nice. Outsiders and old ladies won't like going to church if we're singing them. But have we not been given the psalms to sing? And do not the psalmist call for God to kill our enemies all over the place? God calls us to call on him to kill. Singing psalms is about obedience to his lordship. He wants us to sing psalms, and with this obedience, his hands are moved and his arrows fly. Could singing the words of these psalms result in anything else? They are perfectly in line with his will. It is in line with his will to sing, O Yahweh, deliver my soul from a lying lip, from a deceitful tongue. What shall he, God, give to you, and what shall he add to you, O deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior. I want us to consider now the heart behind this spiritual warfare. The last verse of this psalm shows us what is going on in the psalmist's heart and why he deems this psalm necessary. Verse 7. I am for peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. The psalmist is asking God to deliver him from liars because he is for peace. He wants peace. These liars want war. They intend to hurt the righteous with their lies. The tool of warfare that the wicked uses against the psalmist is lies that lead to hatred and murder. The tool used by the psalmist against his enemies is prayer. The words of this very psalm calling on God to act. Both are trying to win. Both have a desired outcome. But each of them are drawing from different kinds of tool belts. Both are fighting to win, but they are placing their faith in a different set of weapons, different approaches to the battle. To the nearsighted foolish man, the lie does appear to be a powerful weapon. How many people are under the sway of lies today? On the surface, they do look like effective weapons. You can see why many are placing their faith in them 
as a means to their wicked ends. The wicked have no problem fighting dirty. All they care about is winning, so a lie seems like a sure, short-term path to victory. Didn't we see the government pulling from their wicked tool belt a range of lies to push vaccination in our country? They wanted to grow the uptake, so without any evidence, they said that they were safe and effective. Lies. They just asserted it. They couldn't have known that without long-term trials. That should have been obvious to everyone. But they even had the nerve to say that the vaccine-hesitant were dangerous conspiracy theorists, i.e. that they were the liars that refused to follow the evidence. Lies upon lies. That is the land that we live in. And what happened? It actually worked to begin with. The unvaccinated were hated due to their lies. They were shamed. The vaccine uptake grew to levels that they had to be pretty happy with. They drew from the tool belt of their father, the devil, that is the father of lies, and it worked, hurting the people of God in many ways. The Labour Party, the original liars, are not in power now, but we have a new pack of liars in power today. They also pushed the vaccine in the same way as Labour. Everyone was in agreement with the lies at the time, and liars will continue to lie. So we should expect plenty more whoppers from them in the coming years. <clears throat> but like I said, the weapons that they are reaching for are only good for a short-term victory. The narrative around the vaccine is well and truly destroyed by now. This is the case with every lie, though. Can lies prevail over the truth in the long run? If there is a God in the heavens, and if that God is the God of truth, surely lies cannot prevail. They will be exposed, they will be found out. Our psalms today began with this. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. The psalmist's prayers were answered. Whoever the lies were in his day, they experienced the results of his answered prayer. The psalmist was delivered, and the liars got arrows of some kind. So we should be praying with confidence and expectancy that God will answer these kinds of prayers again in our day. Lastly, <clears throat> since it is, the, is Reformation Sunday, I want us to consider the lies that the, that the reformers of old might confront if they were teleported into our day. Obviously, my judgment on this will be full of subjectivity, but hear me out. There are good objective reasons behind my choices. The reformers picked out the main idols of their culture, and they rightly judged that they were found in the religion of Rome. They won the argument with them in their day regarding the five solas, and we rightly celebrate those doctrines in this church. It's part of our name, Redwood Reformation Church. But there are a new set of lies coming from the enemy in our day. There are still Catholics, obviously, and their doctrine should be confronted. But according to our last census, 
of the 38% of people who identified as Christians in this country, we're still blown away at that, 38% identify as Christian, roughly a quarter of those identified as Catholic. So the Catholic Church is pretty much irrelevant, really. There are much greater idols to smash in our nation than their silly popery. I want to also point out that it would be wrong for us to think that the reformers were solely concerned with error in the church. It might seem that way since the fights we hear about are pretty much exclusively exclusively to do with the church and doctrine. But they mainly confronted the church because the Reformation happened in the middle of Christendom. They confronted the powers in their day, and those powers also happened to carry the name of Christ. Europe, under the Church of Rome, was a 16th century Meshach, a land of lies. If the Reformers were here today in New Zealand, I believe they would be far less concerned with the remaining Catholics and more concerned with the prevailing, pervasive secularism that has been adopted by all the people both inside and outside of the church. I believe that if the reformers were dropped into New Zealand on this very day, they would be most astonished at our worldliness. And that is where I believe they would begin their pulpit ministry. The church barely recognizes that we sojourn in Meshach because there is very little difference in the way that we and the world live. Yes, we believe different things about God and go to church on Sundays, but we have pretty much swallowed the lies of the unbelievers' worldview wholesale. We have lost our ability to think critically. We have lost our standard for thinking to discern what is true, and we have been carried away by every wind of doctrine. At the root of our worldliness, I believe, is the false doctrine of the sacred secular divide. Do you know what I mean by that? That there are things that are religiously neutral, like education, healthcare, government policy, music, art, things like that. And there are things that are simply religious, things of the church, who Jesus is, and what we do on Sunday, things like that. It is taught that these sacred and secular things must be kept separate. Though some of this might have stemmed from Luther's teachings, and he was one of the reformers, I think even he would be astonished where this false doctrine has taken us. For the most part, the reformers believed that everything ought to be governed by the word of God, that there was no neutrality, not in politics, not in entertainment, and and not even in the way that we order our calendar. The reformers believed that God defines what is true, good, and beautiful. So we ought to seek his will if we want to understand what is true, good, and beautiful. And what they believed about these things, they lived out, producing the most prosperous culture that the earth has ever seen. And it is this culture, their culture, the reformers' culture, that our country is intent on tearing down with the lies of secular garbage. Related to this sacred-secular divide, the reformers would be astonished to see that we are sending our kids to the socialistic, atheistic education programs of our government. 
Though the secular nature of education has become an unkickable sacred cow in our day, they would immediately drum it into the church from the pulpit, education is not neutral and our children are the Lord's. To not give your children a Christian education under normal circumstances is flat-out disobedience. We are taught that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so that should be at the foundation of every class and every interaction in a Christian child's education. The reformers would grieve to see how the church has been giving over their children to the world. We could multiply the examples of where the reformers would confront this sacred secular divide that is destroying the church in our nation, but I want to move on to another thing that I think would astonish them and get them lighting up our pulpits. I believe they would immediately teach on what it is to live by faith and the evils of pragmatism. The reformers understood the folly of following the way that seems right to man. That heads downward. That heads to death. The church's pragmatism shows that we barely believe that there is a God in the heavens. For a couple of generations now, the Protestant Church of New Zealand has forced their humanistic growth models, growth strategies, on the bride of Christ, compromising where they think we could appeal to the tastes of the world. Our faithless pragmatism has shown that we do not know the God we claim to serve. It shows that we have not believed that Christ will build his church through his appointed means and his appointed means only. The pillar in support of the truth has become, in our culture, an old fence post, past its use-by-date, that the church has tried to resurrect by decorating it with a few tacky Christmas lights, a sign that says we're sorry, and a few Mary carvings that everyone can tell were done by a white guy. (laughs) (coughs) Obviously, that is not the only way we have been pragmatic, showing that we do not understand what faith does. Outside of the walls of the church, we have also been faithless when it comes to having children, prioritizing all manner of things over fruitfulness. And as I just said, we have been faithless when it comes to educating the few children we do have. We have believed we need a second income and a good amount of holidays per year, more than we need to daily train up our children to love and serve the Lord. We rarely sacrifice our comforts for anything. We have also been faithless when it comes to taking on debt. How is the Bible informing the church in this area? Though the Bible has plenty to say about debt, we approach debt in the exact same way as the world. Is there any difference between us and Meshach? We are well intertwined with the worldly systems and our faith is too weak to pull away from them. We would rather live off the crumbs from their table than plant in hope with an empty stomach. Do we lend generously and expect nothing in return? Do we open our homes to strangers? Do we sacrifice anything for others? This is all what we're called to. Do we take great risks for the sake of the kingdom? That is what true faith does. 
but it has pretty much disappeared from the church, and the reformers would recognize this. Normal Christianity is considered radical. We have bought into the lies of our culture <clears throat> that we live in a mechanical, a godless type of capitalistic society. But what does our Lord say? Our Father will supernaturally provide for those who seek first the kingdom. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do we believe this? <clears throat> It'll be seen in the way that we live. <clears throat> I know I've already talked about this, but I have to bring it up again. This kind of faithlessness was clearly on display with this election. I am certain there is no way a reformer would vote for a pro-abort party or allow anyone in the congregation to do so. Whatever potential benefit that vote might have held out for us, it is nothing compared to the promises that God holds out for those who refuse to take part in evil. Do we believe God will provide for us under evil rulers? <clears throat> then why would a Christian taint themselves by supporting one evil over another? <clears throat> we should support no evil options. <clears throat> Faith has no fellowship with the fruitful deeds of darkness. That is, we have no fellowship with the lies of Meshach. Instead, we live to expose the lies of our land for the sake of a true and lasting peace over this land. <clears throat> the goal of every reformer in every age should be to expose all the lies, which will mean kicking all the sacred cows. It will mean provoking the hatred of the people of Meshach with our words. The truth coming from our mouths destroys their lies, brings them down, so our words must be violently oppressed, uh, violently suppressed, our psalmist today was a reformer with words that expose lies. He said this, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. When he speaks, he provokes them to war. It was his words that provoked war. The main failure of our church today is that we are not provoking war. Our words have remained safe and permissible. But if the church lives by faith, being the pillar of truth in the world, we would stir up some hatred. But along with that, we would eventually see the extension of Christ's kingdom of peace. We are for peace. Christians must speak provocative words for the sake of that peace. For peace in the turmoiled souls of sinners. For peace in broken families that are trying to live without the wisdom of God for peace in our nation that goes on without the true standards of justice and the prosperity that comes from the rule of Christ. Like the psalmist, we must live for this peace by faith, seen in action. <clears throat> Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We truly dwell in Meshach, in a land full of lies. You see it, 
and thank you for giving us a heart that hates the things that are being said here. Lord, we long for your truth. We long for the heavenly realities, for the things that come from above. You are full of truth, and in you is all wisdom. So, Lord, we seek you. Lord, we long for you. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be effective as we live in Meshach, to not balk at saying the truth because it causes war. Lord, may we seek peace truly using your means, using the things that are hated by this world, the foolishness of the gospel, the call to repentance. Lord, I pray that you would cause this church to be a light amongst this nation, to expose the darkness. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing Psalm 120 now. Oh, 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 oh,